1: Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas
0: Theological Seminary.
1: Welcome to The Table, we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic today is a book entitled Humans 2.0, which I guess the question would be, does 1.0 go back to... Adam and Eve, where do we start with 1.0? But anyway, um, Fuzz Rana, is it Rana? Am I going to pronounce that right? Or Fuzz yes, R- that's right. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I, I, sometimes I have to guess at the last name, so that's great. He's uh, vice president of research and apologetics at Reasons to Believe. He's located in Southern California. He's with us by Zoom today. And Fuzz is one of two authors of a book a major author, in fact, of Humans 2.0, Scientific, Philosophical, and Theological Perspectives on Transhumanism. Now, um, I guess, uh, well, let me ask you the first question, which is, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, reasons to believe, and how did a nice guy like you get into a gig like this?
2: (laughs) Well, I I like to think it's God's calling, you know, but, uh, you know, I'm a biochemist by training, and after, you know, finishing up my education, I worked for a number of years in research and development, but it was really uh, science and particularly the elegant designs of biochemical systems that convinced me there was a creator when I was a graduate student, and that, long story short, led to my conversion to Christianity, and you know, over the years uh, have always had interest in science faith issues. And an opportunity opened up oh, well over 20 years ago now to join Reasons to Believe uh, on a full-time basis. And so I, I jumped at that opportunity. And, you know, our organization is about how uh, to, to integrate science with the Christian faith, with an eye towards developing apologetic uh, materials that the church can use, and then really trying to encourage people to use those materials really for service of evangelism. So we consider ourselves to be an evangelistic organization more so than anything else, where we see science as a powerful bridge to the gospel.
1: Very interesting. So if I'm listening to your story carefully, you came to the Lord in the midst of college or graduate school, in other words, down the road. You didn't grow up in a Christian home.
2: No, I didn't at all. In fact, uh, I have an unusual name. And in, it's a, it's an Islamic name. My father was a Muslim, and so I grew up in a home where Islam was the primary faith that was expressed. And uh, even seriously dabbled in Islam for uh, my, in my teenage years before I just kind of walked away from it and really embraced more of a position of agnosticism than anything else.
1: Ah, so your so your work, I guess, it's the intricacy of, for lack of a better description uh biological design and those kinds of things that opened up the door for you to see god's handiwork uh and and then go from there
2: yeah that's exactly right it was yeah you know just you know biochemical systems are so elegant and sophisticated there's an ingenuity to them and that really begs the question you know how did these systems come about and you know as a graduate student i you know was exploring chemical evolutionary models know, for the origin of biochemistry and really felt like none of those was adequate. And the only thing left was really there was a mind that somehow must have produced life. And that then led to questions like, well, who is this mind? And do I relate to that mind at all? And it was a pastor who introduced me to the Christian faith uh, by challenging me to read the Bible. I never had seriously read the Bible until that point in time until he issued that challenge, and it was the Sermon on the Mount that, uh, you know, convinced me that that uh, Jesus' identity, that Jesus was who Christians claimed him to be.
1: That, that's fascinating, because the Sermon on the Mount was actually very also responsible for my own coming to the Lord. The, the end of it, it made it clear that Jesus wasn't just a religious great, but that you had to deal with him. So, uh Interesting. Uh, well, l- let, me, let me ask you for another explanation. Um, and and I, you can take this any way you want to go with it, uh, whether you want to go through the Humans 2.0 portal or you want to go through the transhumanism portal, either one of those. What in the world are you trying to raise by this topic?
2: Well, you know, um, what we're trying to, to do in the book is really begin to engage in a serious way from a Christian worldview perspective, an idea known as transhumanism. And in my experience, very few people have actually heard of transhumanism, but they're far more familiar with the ideas behind transhumanism than they might think. In the the nutshell, transhumanism is this idea that uh, we have a moral obligation. And I just want to pause there for a minute, because those are strong words. But transhumanists feel that humanity, we have a moral obligation to use science and technology to modify our biological makeup as human beings, really, in a sense, taking control of our own evolution and, in doing so, correct the flaws that are part of our anatomical design and enhance our capabilities beyond our natural biological limits, making us more intelligent, stronger, more psychologically well-adjusted. And the reason why Uh, transhumanists see this as an imperative is because they feel like there's pain and suffering that arises out of our limitations. uh, And they ultimately see, you know, our fate as human beings, which is our own personal death, as well as the imminent extinction of the human species as an intolerable. And so they see science and technology as the way to overcome our greatest biological limitation, namely our own mortality and they see our destiny as a human species in what science and technology can deliver. So it's a, an idea that, you know, uh, I think is going to be the most influential idea in the next several decades and will really shape the world that we live in, uh, particularly as our world becomes more and more secular. You know, people are going to turn to science and technology as a, as a source of salvation. So it's a, an idea that Uh, again, is kind of the fodder for science fiction, but it's becoming a reality before our very eyes because of advances in biotechnology and bioengineering.
1: So that means, I mean, I I listen to that and I go, well, uh, actually, haven't we been on this road for a little bit of time anyway? I mean, when we think about the way in which medicine functions in our lives and the way in which it helps us with disease and that kind of thing, we're sort of we're sort of on that highway a little bit, aren't we? But this is this is taking it and I uh, have a little fun here, putting it on steroids in a sense, right? And <laughs> and uh, and and you know, uh, going the step beyond. Oh, let me just introduce the three areas that you discuss uh, in setting up the next question. The three approaches that you discuss are genetics, bionics, and anti-aging. At least that's the way I've categorized them, very much as a layperson um, in, in this and and, and so part of what I find fascinating in your book is what I will call the balance of it, which is you've, you've got a very good balance between distinguishing that which is helpful and which does serve humanity well from that which they need to be concerned about in this movement. So, so help us in general with kind of that space, because like I said, we're, in one sense, we're on this highway already. We don't just let disease run its course. You know, we try and fight it, that kind of thing. So, um, so help us with that space a little bit.
2: Yeah, well, you know, it, it, in, in, in many respects, as you're rightly pointing out, Daryl, you know, w- w- as human beings, we, we rely on technology and, and we depend upon science to discover things about the world that we can then apply in the form of technology with the idea of making our lives easier and better, improving the quality of our lives. We, we intervene when we can. To mitigate human pain and suffering that is, arises through diseases and through injury, we want to see human beings flourish. and so technology is a very powerful tool towards this end and and while you know we, we've always been able to use technology really in many respects to augment our biological capabilities, there's a difference between getting in a car to, to you know or getting in an airplane to facilitate the rapid travel from one location to another versus literally modifying our, our biological makeup to the point where we potentially might even alter our very nature as human beings in order to, you know, achieve, uh, you know, a, a greater quote unquote quality of life. So this is really where transhumanism, I think, is, distinguishes itself is none of these technologies fundamentally alter our biology but with transhumanism, that's what you really are looking at, hence the idea of transhumanism or humans 2.0. Transhumanists really want to reinvent humanity, kind of ushering in uh, what you might call a post-human future. You know, and and uh, this idea has been around for a long time. Uh, you know, it goes back to the, to the days of J.B.S. Haldane and his book, The Adalus, and which was the inspiration for, for Huxley's book, A Brave New World. But nobody really took the idea seriously in an academic sense. You know, as the fodder for science fiction, but suddenly we've got these technologies like gene editing with the CRISPR gene editing technology or brain computer interfaces, or we're seeing remarkable advances in anti-aging technology that suddenly give transhumanists the tools they need to essentially execute their agenda. And And to me, I think their ideas are going to be very appealing to many people because while well, so- somebody may be hesitant to sign on the dotted line saying, I am a card-carrying transhumanist, they are going to be very much enamored with the prospects of becoming stronger, more intelligent, <laughs> you know, living longer uh, through the use of technology and increasingly are going to be willing to, to, to subject themselves to modifications, technological modifications of their biology to, to achieve these very things, and you know, the, the 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 what's so complex about this issue is it's hard just to simply condemn what transhumanists are trying to achieve because this technology can be used for so much good, particularly in biomedicine.
1: So I'm, I'm hearing two things that kind of are colliding, which is not unusual when we live in a fallen world. On the one hand, I hear there's a creativity that is a part of this about design and about managing what i call managing the garden well our stewardship which is built into the way we're made in the image of god so that that part of it is a is a check if you will but i'm also hearing that that ability to kind of alter who we are made in the image of god also exists and so it's kind of figuring out which is wh- where the where the line is between those two things, am I am I characterizing that correctly? Yeah, yes, you are.
2: And, and let, let's just talk. You, you use a concrete example just to kind of flush this out a little bit. You know, let's say somebody has suffered a, a serious injury and they've lost a limb, mm-hmm. right? And and so we now have the capability of building these very sophisticated, you know, prosthetic robotic limbs, and with something called a, a brain computer interface, which is an electronic Device that you can essentially in, implant in the brain, you can teach patients through that interface to learn how to use the electrical activity in their brain to direct the, the movement of a robotic prosthetic limb to the point where they even develop a sense of ownership of the limb. And you right. could equip that limb with what's called artificial skin that can pick up you know, activity in the environment, the heat, it can sense pressure, can sense cold, and send electrical signals to the brain that our brain learns to interpret as sensations about the environment. And so this could revolutionize how we treat people that have you know, been injured and have lost the use of a limb. They, suddenly it could revolutionize you know, their lives. So who isn't excited about these kinds of prospects? But on the other hand, if we could do that, then what's to keep me if I was a, a pro athlete from intentionally amputating my legs to get these, bio, you know, these bionic legs that are going to make me, you know, stronger and be able to run faster, right? Or, you know, would it be okay, you know, for uh, somebody to, you know, to undergo that operation if that allows them to do some kind of labor, some kind of job where super strength would actually be required, You know, and so you're kind of in this gray zone, right, of is this really okay? Is this not okay? At what point can we make these modifications without really losing our identity as human beings?
1: Yeah, an example that I thought caught my attention, at least one of them, there are several in the book, uh, is the case of someone who's a quadriplegic. uh, And and, uh, again, a, a very similar technology, I take it. Um, that their, 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 even their thoughts and expressions are capable of, of allowing them to move or perhaps even allowing them, if they can't speak, even um, utter and communicate with people in a way that was not even considered possible before. And I'm thinking, whoa, that, that would be something. I mean, I could see someone coming along and saying, that's enhancing their humanity. Um, that is mm-hmm. yeah, giving right. them the ability to communicate and interact with the environment around them in a way that they currently struggle to do, that kind of thing. Um, and then there are other moves that are made that are that are uh, more technical. You make a distinction in here that maybe helps us with this. Um, and that is you talk about, I think, therapeutic enhancements and then other kinds of enhancements. I can't remember off the top of my head the, the title you give to the second category, but you say something that's therapeutic that's kind of restorative, for lack of a better perhaps synonym. That's one thing. But when you go to an enhancement level or, a, or an alteration level, then that's raising other sets of concerns.
2: Yes. Yeah. And, and even when you start talking about even therapeutic uses, there's all kinds of ethical issues that that are emerging, you know, like with brain computer interfaces, there's a new area in ethics called neuroethics now, mm-hmm. you know, where people are really asking questions because there's a collaboration being formed between the human patient and the brain computer interface to direct the activity of electronic devices and machine hardware, you know, who is actually the autonomous agent here? Is it the patient? Is it the brain computer interface? Is it a combination of the two? And would that patient have actually intended to carry out that action if it wasn't for the brain computer interface? In, it, it, the, the, the influence of that brain-computer interface. So you start getting into some really sticky ethical issues just simply even in terms of therapeutics. But now when you start talking about, you know, using, you know, this technology uh, for, you know, other, other purposes, you know, to, to enhance our intellectual capabilities, that really begins to open up, you know, a whole nother set of ethical questions that, that that are not only ethical, but also theological in nature too. And, and for example, uh, recently Elon Musk has formed a company called Neuralink, and he's trying to develop the next generation of brain computer interfaces and commercialize them. And so he sees these as not only having biomedical utility, but the next interface between the, the human user and electronic devices. So instead of Siri or Alexa, you just now have the brain computer interface implanted, you know, in your brain that you use to control, <laughs> you know, all the smart devices. You don't have to talk
1: to Alexa; you can just think about it.
2: That's exactly right. Yeah, well, but what? But all? But interestingly enough, Elon Musk's ultimate motivation behind this, which he sees as a, a, a an imperative, is he's afraid of. The the coming AI revolution. He's afraid of artificial intelligences, hmm. and and could we actually create an autonomous AI system that would then jeopardize humanity? And so he argues that if we're unless we're able to use these interfaces to augment our intellectual capability by marrying the human brain with uh, computer hardware and software, we would have no chance against AI systems. This is the only way we're going to be able to compete with them, and so. And so he, he sees this as, as absolutely necessary for our survival as a species. Uh, and, and yet this same kind of technology also inspires people that kind of hold to the Ray Kurzweil view of maybe one day we could upload our minds or our essence into <laughs> machine hardware. And suddenly we have a, a, a new type of morti- immortality, we have a type of an immortality where we separate our mind from you know, our failing, you know, biological, you know, encasement, our, our vessels. Now, there's a whole bunch of worldview and philosophical ideas embedded within that, that vision, you know, about the nature of humanity and the nature of the brain and the mind. But, but it's it, these kind of advances that really inspire people to think that this might be possible one day. And, and as a result, this becomes, a, again, a very appealing gospel of sorts, to people, you know, I don't, I'm not going to trust in the person of Christ. I'll trust in what technology can deliver.
1: Okay. So let's put some of these pieces together. So we've got, you know, the genetics, the bionics and the anti-aging. My understanding is another way to this kind of immortality, if I'll put it that way, that pushes into the transhuman space is, um, the way in which, um, our understanding of genetics is changing, becoming more precise, the ability to work on and or reproduce and or change or alter our genetics so that certain things don't happen. Again, just thinking about this positively for a second, if we can isolate, I'm speaking as a layman, if we can isolate that part of a genetic code that triggers a disease and we are able to I'll I'll just use an image. Do surgery on that piece of, of material so that it won't trigger. So that I don't have the disease. I mean, your initial gut reaction is that's a good thing. Um, that, that, that's positive. If we could wipe out disease that way, but if I alter it in such a way that I become a different kind of person uh, in the process, in, in a more significant level, which I take it is conceivable. Then, um, then that's a different conversation. Have I mapped that territory out uh, nicely enough? You, you sure have, yeah. And and that's you know because you know the
2: power of CRISPR gene editing is mind-boggling, and there's still some technical issues that that need to be addressed. Significant technical issues that need to be addressed before this really is going to move into a clinical setting. But literally, it could revolutionize medicine. There are thousands and thousands of genetic disorders that many of them rare where there's no treatment for whatsoever. There's no way to manage these diseases successfully. And if you could go in and replace a defective gene that's causing that genetic disorder with a healthy version of that gene, you could mitigate the symptoms of the disease. Uh, and so this is you know, really, really you know, very exciting, but that same technology could again be used to create designer babies if you apply it at the embryo level uh, or it could be used to you know to modify human beings beyond you know our natural you know natural biological limits and, and so this is a, a reality that's in front of us and what's a, what's alarming to me as a biochemist is crispr gene editing is so inexpensive and so easy to use that it literally has spawned something known as a biology DIY movement, a biology do-it-yourself movement, where there are people that are now arguing that this type of technology should not be in the hands of the scientific and medical elites, but rather it should be democratized. Everybody should be able to have access to the technology, and we should have the right to modify our bodies any way that we deem acceptable. And because of the in expense, in the ease of use, this is this is a, a reality that's on top of, that's really upon us. I mean, you can actually go on Amazon and, and buy a CRISPR gene editing kit for under $200. Now, it's a relatively harmless, you know, little science experiment. But if you have Amazon Prime in the next day or two, you could be doing, you know, gene editing tech ki- uh, experiments on your kitchen counter. And yet, if you ramp up the price into the several into the $5,000 range you can get kits that are really allow you to do some rather sophisticated gene editing and and so you know there the, the cat is out of the bag so to speak uh when it comes to th- this kind of technology
1: well i mean uh, the, the the challenge of that of course is is immense um uh, let's talk about, we've talked about genetics a little bit. We've talked about bionics. Let's talk about anti-aging. What's going on in that sphere?
2: Yeah. And, and here again, we're seeing a, a, another revolution that's happening within medicine where increasingly a growing number of biogerontologists and, in in and, and medical professionals are beginning to view aging as a disease instead of viewing aging as just part of our natural, you know, life, you know, natural life processes, uh, they they actually view aging as a disease. And if it's a disease, then it means it's something that we can treat, that's something that we can cure. And so a growing number of, again, medical professionals are looking at ways to not only arrest the aging process, but actually reverse the aging process. And there are highly credible scientists uh, that are advancing a, these different ideas on how we might actually be able to go about doing something like that. And people like Aubrey de Grey, which some of your listeners may have heard of, uh, is one of the leading pioneers in this area who has produced this, you know, multi-pronged uh, approach for how to to bring about the, the end of the aging process. But, you know, just in the last um, year or so, there have been two separate scientific studies that have been published in, in highly reputable journals where researchers have shown that through two different types of uh, regimes, they can actually re- reverse the aging process in test subjects. One study involved hyperbaric oxygen treatments and another involved treatments with growth hormone. And after the administering the, these treatments over the course of a year, the, the test subjects, actually had a biological age that was less, two years less than their chronological age. Mm-hmm. There are certain biomarkers that will correlate with age. And those markers actually indicated that the test subjects became younger, biologically speaking, through the, through the these treatments as opposed to actually aging you know, in a way that was commiserate with their chronological age. And so this is just the, the beginnings of really some potential revolutions, you know, in medicine, you know, and um, many people see aging as if if not a disease as being the primary causative factor for things like cancers and cardiovascular disease, diabetes, the number one risk factor in in some of these, you know, diseases that plague many of us are, are is actually our age. And so the idea is if we can Make ourselves younger or prevent aging from happening at such a rapid rate, we could literally transform medicine, where these kinds of diseases would be something that would be rather rare, as opposed to being commonplace. So, so you know, it's it's a revolution that's happening in medicine, you know, uh, with these advancing uh, technologies. And uh, you know, there's a I'm sure you're familiar with Brent Waters. He's written a wonderful book that I would highly commend to your listeners called This Mortal Flesh. It's a little bit dated now, but his insight is really very powerful. But he expresses in the book concern that medicine is actually becoming a a, a discipline that's no longer going to be focused on treating people who suffer from diseases. It's going to become more and more an area of work where the goal would be life extension, and and, in in human enhancement uh and and so this anti-aging you know these advances in anti-aging are really a harbinger for for the the type of thing that brent waters was expressing concern about
1: well i i can see the commercial around the corner that as you turn 60 the hope is you really can go back to being 29 uh (laughs) you know um and uh and I imagine some people would be attracted to that possibility, so I can see the, the nature of it. So let, let's shift gears a little bit. That's kind of the, the lay of the land and what's going on here. Um, why is this ethically so challenging, other than the uh, seeming attraction of it on the surface, the fact that it emerges out of a context which is largely secular? Um, and so you know, where else are you going to go if that's your worldview? Um, that kind of thing. What are, what are the specific kinds of ethical challenges you see this area producing for Christians? And, and then we'll follow up with a discussion of, so how should Christians think about this?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's a, you know, there's a there's myriad of, of ethical problems that start to arise. Some of them are, are you know, universal across these three technologies. Others are distinct to you know, each individual technology. Uh, But, you know, I uh, categorize them in broad terms. I mean, there's always concerns about justice and equitable access to technologies, particularly these technologies can be used for enhancement purposes, because if you have the wherewithal to become enhanced and that creates an advantage for you socially and economically, then then that, you know, obviously can create a a tiered society where there are the haves and the have-nots, even worse than than what we see, you know, in today's world. You know, that's one concern. The other concern is loss of human identity and and exploitation of human beings. Uh, Some of the technologies, particularly the technologies that involve gene editing, require if we're going to use them, apply them at the embryo stage, then that in and of itself opens up all kinds of pro-life issues. Uh, but if you apply them at the embryo stage, you're going to have to have a source of eggs, for example, human eggs, and that opens up the possibility of exploiting again socially, economically disadvantaged women and things like that. Uh, not to mention, you know, the the, the destruction of, of of human embryos, or if. You're looking at an anti-aging technology that involves embryonic stem cells. Again, all kinds of, of pro-life issues emerge. Uh, you know, there's issues w- with loss of autonomy and, and loss of freedom. There's even issues that relate to generational relationships, where if we have a, a world where suddenly people can live for hundreds of years, that dramatically changes the way future generations look at the at the. Current generation, where no, where both generations now represent threats to one another, as opposed to the current generation actually serving the future generation, which is you know currently the way our societies are structured. You know, so that the, I mean the 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 ethical issues are legion, and what what is of concern to me is most of the ethical deliberations I see are from a secular perspective. It's secular bioethics, which is rooted in consequentialism and utilitarianism. And it's very, it becomes evident very quickly that those approaches to these kind of ethical problems really fall short in terms of, you know, simultaneously encouraging, you know, the development of these very powerful technologies uh, to ensure that they're used for good, while at the same time protecting those people that are vulnerable, those people that are marginalized in our world today.
0: Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com.
1: So, so just thinking about this, and this is a philosophical theological question, uh, one of the things that uh, secularism does is it tends to view the world very materially and almost exclusively material soul. Uh, uh, in material c- categories, the way I guess I explain this is it's hard to deal with the soul if you don't think a soul exists, and so um, uh, so so those are the concerns, the theological concerns that kind of over overlap with the philosophical elements of what we're talking about here, and where the worldviews um, to some degree collide because there's only one set of concerns that some people are are worried about. There's the nature of of thinking through what a human being is beyond the material that theologians are concerned about, and those two things are colliding.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and that's a, a, you know, a a great way to think about this, that it really is a collision of worldviews in many respects, but what I see as potentially kind of common ground are the concern that people in our culture have today with issues of social justice, and that is a loaded term, I understand, but... But we all are concerned about fairness and about in- inequality and making sure that 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 there's genuine justice in the world, which is a wonderful thing, regardless of how you at, you know attach political ideas and and other ideas to it. Inherently, we all want a sense of justice, and this is where I think the Christian worldview can gain, uh, I think, uh, a foothold within these deliberations within our culture because. as as Christians, we are concerned uh, about the dignity and the sanctity of every human being. Every human being has life. Every human being has worth. And so we want to make sure that everybody has access to these technologies. We want to make sure that nobody is exploited, you know, in the process of developing these technologies. Because with, you know, consequentialism or utilitarianism, you know, you could make a case that it's okay for a single woman to be exploited for her eggs if that leads to, you know, a, a several hundred individuals being able to have children that, that are free from disease and, you know, maybe even are able to contribute to society at, at a very high level because they have certain enhancements that are deemed, you know, valued, valuable by our society. So in a, in a utilitarian sense, that scenario could be deemed to be acceptable. Um, you know, pr- and you could justify it by saying, well, we're, you know, paying this woman, you know, money or, you know, we're providing some benefit to her for this. Whereas from a Christian worldview perspective, we would see this as being horrifically exploitive. And and I think that, you know, again, provides us with a, a pathway to, to to I think, give the Christian worldview a hearing in these conversations.
1: Yeah, The whole area seems to me to be extremely uh, challenging. Uh, Let me me talk about a couple of areas that touch on kind of what we've been through recently that are kind of the early stages of this. I know that there's a lot of discussion. I almost hesitate to bring this up. I know there's been a lot of discussion about the way in which the vaccines that deal with COVID have been either produced or tested um, to see their viability because they do get into this, um, genetic space I'm assuming as a uh, biochemist you're familiar with this so mm-hmm. help us think through think through that space a little bit because my understanding is that the various vaccines were produced slightly differently and have slightly different levels of involvement with those kinds of concerns and am I right to see these as kind of early examples of the type of dilemmas that we find ourselves in? yes, very much so because um
2: you know, the, with the uh, Pfizer, uh, BioNTech, and the Moderna vaccines, which were messenger RNA vaccines, uh, the development of those vaccines and the production does not require human cells of any sort. There w- human cells were used for confirmatory testing for, for a limited number of experiments to make sure the vaccines did what they were supposed to do when they entered into human cells. The uh, AstraZeneca and the Johnson and Johnson vaccines are uh, called adenovirus vector vaccines. And these required the use of human cells to develop. The human cells were used for confirmatory testing. And human cells were also used for, uh, will have to be used for their production. The problem is that the human cells that were used uh, are a particular cell line called HEK-293. Uh, which essentially means that these were derived from a human uh, uh, embryo, uh, that are, or a human fetus, uh, the kidney cells of a human fetus. So it's human embryo kidney cells, H E K, is uh, that that's what the the letters stand for. And, and so th- these fetal cells were, you know, um, were harvested by a researcher, I think, in Sweden, uh, after an elective abortion took place. And according to the the claims this abortion was completely disconnected from the act of harvesting the fetal cells. It was a, a an elective abortion that was intended to terminate the the pregnancy after the fact these researchers came in and harvested cells and then created the cell line that is now an immortal cell line that can be perpetrated forever and has existed for fifty years and and so you're using the researchers are using cells uh, and the production uh, the biotech companies are using cells that were derived from a singular abortion, again, 50 years ago, but they still are cells that were derived from an abortion. So we're not going to require the ongoing use of fetal cells for the production of these vaccines, but it is, again, making use of cells that were derived from a a, a fetus. And so you really are in this very complex ethical arena, right, as to, you know, as, a, as somebody who holds to a pro-life position, you know, particularly is that the Johnson and Johnson vaccine uh, acceptable or not, you know, from a, from an ethical standpoint, you know, and there's very interesting deliberations that, that happen from both perspectives. Um, you know, the way I think about it is, look, I don't know that I, I, it, by taking the Johnson and Johnson vaccine or refusing the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, I can, I, I'm encouraging or I'm preventing an abortion from taking place because it's already happened. It's after the fact. But I think this is a wonderful opportunity, if nothing else, to talk about the what I see to be the evils of, of abortion. But it's a complex issue where I can see people who are pro-life taking very different perspectives based on how you deliberate through this this ethical quagmire. It's a very yeah, complex issue. I've heard
1: issue. people um distinguish between the two types and and saying they're ethically comfortable with one, but not quite so ethically comfortable with the other for, uh, because of the nature of the involvement.
2: Yeah, and and I kind of, in that camp too, if I have my choice, I would prefer either the Pfizer-BioNTech or the Moderna as opposed to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, But, you know, the, the fact of the matter is by refusing the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, I'm not preventing an abortion from happening.
1: Right, right, it's a fait accompli already. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The question and, and, is whether openness to that would encourage the continuing, the continuance of that kind of use. That's right. the ethical conversation. You
2: know, and and you know, I I I'm a biochemist. I'm not a bioethicist, obviously, but you know, I have read both Protestant as cat as well as Catholic bioethicists who are pro life, and there seems to be a kind of a consensus emerging, in the sense that look, these are th- these. This was an act that was very. It's very far removed from the actual administering of the vaccine, you know, and, uh, you're looking at really, uh, you know, secondary, tertiary and quaternary acts after the original act, which was highly, you know, which was everybody would agree is immoral, at least as a pro-life person. Uh, and so they, they would justify the vaccines, you know, uh, or having people take the vaccines, uh, you know, under those circumstances. But I really like how the, Pontifical Academy for Life has issued a challenge to the biotech industry saying you really need to develop a different source of human cells other than, you know, from abortions where, where again, you have this ethical quagmire surrounding, you know, surrounding the vaccines. Am, am I
1: right that in the book you discuss the possibility of developing... Um, so- um, again, I'm going to be in lay terms. Uh, cell bases are something that deal with living cells and living people, as opposed to uh, those that are involved fetuses. What I guess the backside question of that is: what makes a fetus a particularly good candidate for this kind of work as opposed to a living cell? Yeah. Well,
2: you know, when these cell lines were developed, which was in the 1970s. You really to to develop a cell line that would be immortal. Most cells will reproduce only a limited number of times, and then the cells will no longer reproduce. And so, what researchers do is they did at that time is they would go to fetal tissue because those cells have not been fully developed; they're still in the process of development. So the cells are in a uh, you know uh, are in kind of a more generalized state.
1: They're in a potential stage and could go in a variety of directions. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Okay.
2: Right. And so then they could take those cells and then they would have to m- manipulate them to immortalize them. And there's a number of techniques they use to immortalize the cells. And once they've done that, it's a human cell, but it's unlike anything that would exist in nature. And that's yeah. what they end up creating the cell lines with. Uh, uh, in more recent years, um you know, people have been looking to embryos as a source of stem cells, very much like these researchers went to went to to the the fetus, at, where they're looking at again getting cells at the embryo stage, which again allow them to develop a whole different types of a different type of human cells that they can manipulate in the laboratory. Excitingly, there's some advances like we now are discovering that there can be adult stem cells that can be used as opposed to fetal cells. So you can have an adult give us a tissue sample and those cells can be converted into cell lines that might even be able to be transformed to have uh, the properties of being immortal. We've discovered something called induced pluripotent stem cells, which behave like embryo cells, but are transformed from adult cells. So these are some exciting advances that kind of mitigate the need for relying on embryos. And so this is a beautiful example of really what I think the Pontifical Academy of Life is calling for is, you know, is it, it, these, kind of, these kinds of advances.
1: So that means that, uh, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful example of the dilemma that we have. It's conceivable that in the near future, it, these kinds of moves won't be dependent on, on uh, fetal tissue and tissues associated with abortions. But actually, will be be able to be drawn and harvested, if you want to use that word, from living people, um, just like we do blood transfusions. If I can make an analogy, um, and in, in in that way, um, in that way, some of the ethical dilemmas that we started off with um, get taken care of because of the advancements that take place.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right, and. Um, You know, but this is all the more reason why I think it's important for people that are pro-life to really apply pressure, you know, and and with these vaccines, there's a, a, you know, a pragmatism that has to creep in and you hate to use the word pragmatism when you talk about ethics. But, but, you know, also, you know, and there's, again, uh, the vaccines are highly controversial, but if we are to achieve herd immunity, people are going to have to be vaccinated and and once we achieve herd immunity there's a whole lot of pain, human pain and suffering and death that is going to be you know that's going to come to an end you know if we can attain again herd immunity because there is a been a huge toll you know on people all over the world in terms of their health in terms of losing lives because of the, the covid-19 pandemic and so bringing the pandemic to an end through vaccination is also one could view as being kind of a, a pro-life <laughs> uh, outcome or a pro-life objective. A- and so, again, you know, the, the Pontifical Academy and other Protestant bioethicists have pointed out that, you know, again, by, re- by refusing ba- the vaccine, we, we are actually, you know, endangering the lives of other people. Hmm. And and so that also has to be factored into the deliberation as well.
1: Well that's, well, that's kind of a wonderful current, uh, sample of the nature of of the problem of what it is that we're talking about and contemplating here. You know, I I find this to be a very fascinating discussion. Like I say, most Christians, they may have heard about it, but they probably heard about it through the science fiction lens, as opposed to through the actual conversation of kind of where we stand. So what would be your advice to Christians in thinking about this area and in terms of what's involved? What How would how would you I mean, you know, I'm I'm just a little theologian tucked away over here. And then we've got, you know, housewives and, and people who work in the business world who think about this and say, uh, I think I'll just leave that to the scientist or I won't think about it. Or you know, they'll take the uh, gone with the wind approach. I'll think about that tomorrow, um, you know. Um, uh, what advice would you give?
2: Yeah, well, I think transhumanism is going to be uh, uh, one of the most influential ideas in the next several decades that we will be confronted with, and uh, you know this, these, this, this idea is going to bring with it a whole host of issues that we will have to be concerned with as Christians because they will impact each of our lives. We'll, we will have to make decisions. Uh, for our sake and for the sake of our children and grandchildren, you know, about how this technology is going to be deployed and how it's going to be used. And as Christians, I think we really want to make sure that we have the credibility so that the Christian worldview has a place in these conversations. And there is power to the Christian worldview, I think, in terms of ethical deliberations uh, that I think is unmatched com- when you look at secular uh, systems of ethics, and so I think you know as Christians, we we want to shape our culture and we want to shape our culture so that we promote you know the human flourishing and we mitigate pain and suffering. But also, this issue of transhumanism at the end of the day is opening up a need that every human being has for hope, purpose, and destiny that, that it, it's people recognize that death is the enemy and, and they're seeking after salvation through science and technology. But this is a wonderful opportunity, I think, for the gospel to be relevant in, in a brand new and fresh way, mm-hmm. that people that are seeking salvation through science and technology are opening themselves up to what the gospel offers. And so, I think this also makes Christianity you know, uh, relevant in a, in a surprising way in, in, you know, in the future, in the, in the years to come, I think.
1: Yeah. I think there's a, there's an element of, uh, well, we call it human self-understanding and human identity that's wrapped up in this conversation. And if you have a view that basically says, uh, we're a collection of chemical combinations, I'm going to put, I'm going to characterize it a little bit. And that's that's all we are. Versus, no, there's something really purposeful about the way in which we are designed and made. It's a pretty fundamental discussion.
2: It, it is, it is. And and you know, I, you know, I work for an organization where so oftentimes people use science as a, a way to erect a barrier between them and and the Christian faith. And what I see with transhumanism is actually people are using science to lay bare. The, the, the most profound and deepest need that every human being has, which again is uh, a, a sense of, of uh, hope and purpose and destiny, and people are going to seek after that in some place or other. And, and as they're seeking, this is again a golden opportunity for us to articulate the gospel, uh, because the gospel will not disappoint in the way that ultimately science and technology will disappoint.
1: And the interesting thing, of course, is, is at the end. Uh, this is an irony, I guess. Christianity does offer a form of immortality, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, so you can work at it. You can do it the old-fashioned way, you know, by a little lot of hard work, or you can embrace it by grace and by and get in touch with the Creator God. Uh, um, yeah, well, I mean, Christianity
2: is is the ultimate expression of transhumanism,
1: isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So why short circuit it, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, well, this has been fabulous. Uh, I, I really, I really do appreciate your uh, willingness to discuss this with us and take the time to do it with us, and and uh, very, very enlightening. I'm sure it's the first of several conversations we'll have. I mean, there actually, I was thinking about this and reading the book. I said we actually could spend uh, literally a podcast on each one of these subgroupings, the genetics, the bi, the bionics and the anti-aging. And I did, uh, what I love about your book is you kind of come with a surgeon general's warning at the start that says, if you don't want to go through all the blood and guts of what each of these three things are, just jump to this chapter. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately I'm one of these people who, who doesn't believe in jumping. So uh so I waded through all of it, some of which I got, some of which I didn't, but I certainly got the big picture. And what a challenge this is and what a service you've done to the church to to help um, open it up to uh, people and put it at a level in which they can understand not only what's going on, but also the issues that are tied up with it. So thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's, it's a pleasure and an honor. Yeah. And we thank you for joining us on the table. We hope you'll join us again soon. If you get a chance... Uh, uh, and uh, hear this through a subscription service, please uh, leave a review of what you've appreciated about this. This helps us in terms of our own circulation. And if you're interested in subscribing, you can subscribe through um, the URL, dts.edu slash table podcast. That'll certainly put you in a position where you can subscribe and get these automatically each week. We thank you for joining us at the table and hope you'll join us again soon
0: for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.